Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and today on the Roundup for Wednesday, February 21st, we're going to be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last few days. And as we do each week on the Roundup, we take the stories and questions that we go into here on the Wednesday Roundup from our newsletter that comes out on Monday mornings. And for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, we have the smieconsulting.org slash subscribe website. Uh, there you can, on that site, you can subscribe, uh, scroll down a bit to the all the SMIE News Fit to Share link and hit that subscribe button, fill in your details, and you'll get the email version of our newsletter in your inbox Monday morning, every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, we also, uh, for, for your benefit today, uh, those that are new to the Roundup, uh, I'll put the links to not only the uh, sign-up page on the website, but also the email version of the newsletter. Uh, we also have a LinkedIn version of the newspaper of the newsletter for those of you who like uh, that um, way to get your international education news, and I'll drop that link in as well. And that uh, will give you uh, between the two, uh, two two versions, the email and the LinkedIn version. Uh, we have. Uh, we have uh, over 1,600 subscribers on that uh, on that uh, particular newsletter versions. Uh, so we're really pleased that our, our our reach is growing into the international education profession to get this content. Uh, the newsletter itself has uh, anywhere from uh, 25 to 30 stories each week for covering social media uh, impacts, and that can be anything from AI, upcoming web webinars, social media news, uh, how those two and three different things come together in international education and impact what we do, some great blog content that comes out regularly. Uh, we also uh, provide a, a roundup of the global events that are, are happening in other major destination markets like the UK, Canada, Australia, uh, New Zealand, um, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, UK, yeah, uh, and the United States, obviously. So we can do certainly that to help uh, help you understand what's happening in the wider world, and uh, can get you into uh, into the into the kinds of uh, kinds of detail that you need to get perspective on what's going on in the wider world, uh, as well as potential solutions to help you uh, figure out what's best for your institution. Now, we're going to talk today about some of the uh, more important issues of the day, uh, and that's, uh, some, of the, some of that is the changing realities of what we're facing in international education. And that has to do quite a bit with, um, with information related to, uh, excuse me, with information related to uh, what subjects students are coming to study. And for those that aren't aware, uh, the, the print edition and the online edition just came out uh, today uh, for open, those of you who are Open Doors folks uh, at your institutions in terms of the main point people. And uh, we, can, uh, we, we can share that uh, from the latest news uh, that, uh, that we, we already knew this, but STEM is increasingly uh, the, uh, the 
what what students are looking to get into more than anything else in the United States. There's been a couple different analyses on that recently, one by my good friend Peter Vermeulen at uh, University of North Texas that shares that upwards of two th two, almost three quarters of all international students currently in the United States are here as STEM students. So uh, STEM is the topic, and that's the changing reality, the reality of most of our institutions these days. Now, uh, and uh, there's the article that I'm going to be referencing today is from our, our good friends at Inted. Uh, they've got a great piece this past week uh, that uh, shares the changing realities, changing international enrollment realities uh, that focuses a lot on STEM and the impact that has. Uh, why is it, uh, for those that aren't aware, STEM OPT, Optional Practical Training, is available to, um, to international students who are in STEM fields of study, and they can pursue that uh, up to three years of work permission per, um, <clears throat> per, per degree level. Uh, so ma bachelor's, master's, and PhD, they can do three years of work in their field. Uh, so they have the opportunity uh, to, uh, to have more potential work experience because of their, because of their program than anywhere, else in the United, than anywhere else in the world. So that level of commitment to, um, to work for students, and why do we do that in the United States? This was actually started back right at the end of the Bush administration uh, as a, uh, of their time to, uh, to provide uh, opportunities for international students to work in fields that were high demand here in the United States. So STEM fields have certainly done that, and there is a great, um, great opportunity here uh, to, uh, for, for U.S. institutions that can capitalize on this opportunity to get their, their programs in front of prospective students and really make a difference uh, in terms of focusing future students' attentions on your best programs. So this is something that I always make an effort to, uh, to, uh, to, to share with my colleagues is how are you distinguishing your programs, particularly your STEM programs, to future students, when you, international students, when you're, when you're traveling abroad, when you're positioning that, that information on your website, because those are the things that matter. Uh, th these are the kinds of d decisions in terms of job markets, in terms of the length of work that they can do. Uh, we've seen the OPT numbers in the United States grow dramatically in the last uh, last year, last two or three years post-COVID. We now see um, that in 2022, there were over 117,300 new OPT authorizations, 64,000 new STEM OPT authorizations in that time. That's up 87% and 307% respectively over the last decade. So the number of STEM fields that qualify has also grown, and that's a good thing because it opens up the door to future future students who might be looking at other fields that might not have been STEM in the past that are now. Uh, and that's something that always is something you want to promote. We've heard, uh, we've seen stories like this over the last decade of uh, business colleges that are trying to make all their MBA programs STEM now. And as a result of that, they are in the position to better attract better quality students and a larger number of students than they might have been able to attract previously just for a vanilla MBA. But now if it's a STEM MBA, that really opens up doors in terms of work experience, makes them much more, their graduates, international graduates, much more attractive to uh, future employers that know that they can have them potentially for three years of work before they have to make a decision on whether to uh, move them over to H-1B. So there are some real positives about STEM in the United States. We have had a STEM deficit 
in terms of college graduates, U.S. college graduates in the country for at least 25, 30 years. And international students have been the ones that are probably the most engaged in wanting to come here to study STEM because of their math and science backgrounds in their home countries, where it's very much rote learning, uh, memorization, repeating, uh, uh, and a very head smart, brain smart, uh, and those are the kind of skill sets that uh, analytical minds that really do well in STEM programs. Uh, then we don't really have as strong of a culture of that here in the United States. So as a result, it's a little bit harder for those uh, for for. Um, because uh, U.S. students aren't, if they don't already have a passion for science uh, and, and math and in grade school into, into high school, pursuing a, a math and science degree for many uh, U.S. students is not a top priority. It's uh, they want to go business. They want to go uh, fine arts. They want to go hospitality. They want to do something that's uh, more fun, uh, more potentially liberal arts based. And there's nothing wrong with liberal arts. I'm a uh, liberal arts graduate, bachelor's and master's degree. I'm not a STEM guy, but I see the value in it. And I see the value in it as an institutional uh, representative that has the responsibility for bringing in uh, students from abroad. So one of the things, real easy thing that you can do to help position your institution and your majors appropriately is how you display them, uh, particularly when you're doing in-person events. Uh, this is something that I've been doing for the last uh, three years with UNLV uh, at uh, my institution. We've, when we were designing uh, the first international specific piece, there hadn't been one previously. When we were designing that, I knew I wasn't going to be able to have three or four brochures. I wanted to have one simple thing that had as much of what students needed to know, costs, deadlines, programs, uh, scholarships, uh, key selling points, uh, all of that in one place. Uh, so if uh, for, for me, knowing that that uh, knowing that STEM is important and being in the industry for 30 years, I figured that out a while ago. But STEM is, uh, is a big selling point for U.S. institutions because of that OPT, that STEM OPT, extra two years of work permission that they can get. So uh, for me, the reality is uh, I needed to position all of our STEM programs uh, and in an easily identifiable way on our main international flyer. We have over three dozen STEM bachelor's, master's, and doctoral programs. And the way we do that, our, our school colors are, are scarlet and gray. We're the scarlet and gray of the west of the Mississippi for my Ohio State colleagues. So for us, uh, on our international flyer, we highlight in gray all of those STEM programs. So when students go, oh, what do these grade, grade majors mean? Okay, well, see the key in the corner here? That means they're STEM. Do you know what that is? Oh yeah, that means I can do extra two extra years of work. And we talk about that as a real value add to them coming to our institution. And this is part of the perspective piece I talk about all the time here. It's not just about the value of your institution and the highlights and selling points of your school, your university and your city. It's about selling your, your country as well as why is the U.S. the number one in the world for international students for in, in terms of total numbers, in terms of quality, in terms of rankings, all of these things that have traditionally attracted uh, overseas students to the United States, the experience, the intercultural nature of all of our campuses, the campus life itself, which is very unique to the United States in terms of how much we focus on this. Uh, and that's something that I really feel that not enough institutions really get that in terms of seeing the bigger picture and being able to talk not just about their own institution, but about the value of coming to the United States 
because oftentimes the students that you're interacting with, particularly over overseas at fairs uh, that you might uh, be emailing or chatting with online, they are looking at multiple countries to potentially attend higher education opportunities for. So what are you doing uh, to help uh, convince them that your country, not just your university, your country has a lot of opportunities for them, advantages for them if they choose to come to the United States. And then you can add your institutional benefits on top of that. And being able to articulate that well in, in person to students at fairs means all the difference in terms of your ability to uh, make that connection, but also whet that student's appetite a little bit more for what your institution has to offer. So great article by, um, by Inted and their folks there. They opened Doors data that just came out that was uh, kind of a, the book version, online version of what they presented in November in much more detail. It just came out today. Uh, and then uh, in the Inted article, they reference uh, my colleague, uh, Peter Vermeulen at UNT and some of his work that he documented that up to 74% of, uh, of international students in the United States are currently studying in STEM fields. So that's huge. That's a huge number. So uh, how much of how you promote your institution, promote your programs, should also reflect that need. Obviously, your non-STEM programs will get a little offended if you don't mention them, but knowing your audience is part of the challenge here is know that your, the students, when you're interacting at, in large groups at fairs, mentioning that STEM OPT is going to wet the, uh, pique the interest, at least, of most students uh, that that extra two years of work permission can really make a difference. So that's enough for question one uh, for the day. The second question is, what, why can you not ignore India's impact on international education? And this is a foundational question to how we, inter how we function today in international ed in the United States and in the world. Uh, for those that are, uh, have been living under a rock for the last six months or longer, uh, you may have missed the news that India is now uh, certainly not in the open doors numbers that came out in November because that's year-old data, but certainly in the SEVIS by the numbers data, which is real-time uh, international students in the United States, they have surpassed China as the number one center to, US, to the U.S. for post-secondary education. And as a result of that, uh, India is, 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 their population is growing uh, much more rapidly than China. China's is actually decreasing. There are, uh, China, uh, India has always been a grad-heavy market, but there's now also an undergrad market that's growing, an undergrad market that is now the second largest sender for undergraduate studies uh, for uh, international students in the United States after China. But for graduate students, India is uh, double uh, the nearest competitor for numbers in terms of uh, international graduate students in the United States, uh, by far the number one, but now number one overall as well. So uh, that's in India's numbers in real, t real time today, how they are impacting uh, what's going on on our campuses uh, in the United States. But beyond that, and I'm, I refer to an Economics Time, uh, Economic Times article in India uh, that shares that over 59,000 Indians got U.S. citizenship in 2023. Now, they represent now 6.7% of all new citizens in the United States this past year. Um, Mexican, uh, former Mexican nationals were number one at 12.7%. India was number two at 6.7%. That's out of the total number of new U.S. citizens sworn in uh, as citizens this past year. Indians were, were number two 
on that list. And that why are they number two? Why are they coming to the United States? They're coming because that we represent the, the, the American dream for them, uh, the Indian American dream of coming to the United States to uh, make a better life for, for themselves and their families. Some of them, uh, men, many of them have come on initially on H-1Bs, uh, have gone through that process, that very labor, maybe, uh, maybe straight over from, uh, from India to, to work, begin work, and then eventually uh, transition into a, uh, to, to permanent resident applicants and then eventually citizens. That process can take 20 years altogether of uh, H-1B permanent residency, and then eventually a citizenship. There are international students that come from India as bachelor's degrees or master's degree students that get that first job, maybe STEM OPT jobs that gives them three years of work after they're done, and then go into H-1B process for six years and then permanent residency for another six years and then so on. So there are so many Indians that are in the pipeline. We already know that they're number one uh, in the United States for students. They're number one for OPT. They're number one for H-1B. Uh, they are huge numbers in terms of uh, the um, from student track to employer track to re residency track to citizenship, Indians are at the top of the food chain other than Mexico uh, for that citizenship track, but all the way through the process from students to OPT to permanent res H1B to permanent residence, all of that time, Indians have been, over the last 20 years, have increasingly been dominating those areas because they see America as their, their dream, their dream for their families, improving their, uh, the quality of life for their families, the financial conditions for their families. It is all down to how much they value what the United States can offer them. Now, not all of, all of the Indians in the United States come as students or come as employees. Some come as uh, economic migrants, for lack of a better word, uh, that we have had seen floods of into the United States, usually out over the southern border over the last uh, three, four, or five years. Uh, but we're seeing now that uh, they are coming in record numbers. And that isn't a trend that's going to slow anytime soon. When you see what's happened in north of the border in, in Canada, India has been the number one destination or source market for them too. But there was a big diplomatic row last summer with between India and Canada. Uh, Canada has also now implemented two extra requirements that uh, uh, new requirements that are going to limit the number of Indians that are going to come uh, beyond the political row that had already depressed visas award, uh, student study permits awarded to Indians coming uh, for Canadian uh, study. Uh, there have been the, the requirement to raise the minimum number, minimum amount of funding that they had to share from ten thousand to twenty thousand dollars per year. Uh, they've also uh, included um, or put an end to the uh, the public-private partnerships that have led to post postgraduate work permits uh, for these uh, vocational colleges that have been a primary source of the challenges in a lot of the provinces, but particularly Ontario, Quebec especially, where uh, that there's been just, there's some real bad fraud issues, there's been some significant uh, challenges with housing in these provinces that have hired a lot of PG, uh, these PPP students that are admitted through public colleges, but then placed at private colleges, for-profit private colleges that lead to quicker work permits. Uh, those are all things that we really uh, don't have in the United States. Uh, we don't have that system for, for our, our, what we call our vocational colleges here uh, for M visas and such. Uh, so that is a pathway that has, has been there, been very attractive because they only had to show $10,000. Now they have to show $20,000. And the benefit of that postgraduate work permit 
is going away after August this year. Any new students starting in, at PPPs in Canada after August will no longer be able to take advantage of post-study work. So those, their numbers are going to crater after, after the uh, August. In, uh, many, many of those universities, we also found out this week, have changed, uh, those colleges, I should say, have changed their intakes from September when new students wouldn't have been eligible for PPP uh, and postgraduate work permits to uh, August so that they could get in under the wire and be able to still qualify for those work permits after they finish their studies. So again, that's the perspective piece we're talking about. In Canada, they're going to they're going to lose their number one market. Uh, their numbers are going to crater in the next year, uh, more so than they have already. So the question will be, are there opportunities now for U.S. institutions to potentially even ratchet up the volume more and uh, and attract a larger share of that Indian market? And I think there are. Because you look at what's happening in the UK with the, the dependent study ban that no longer can mass, master's degrees or lower uh, candidates coming to the UK bring family, family members with them because of net migration concerns there. So that becomes less attractive. India was the number one destination or source country for, uh, post, for those dependent work study, uh, dependent students that would, uh, dependents of students that would come with uh, that are no longer be able to come. And so that country will become less attractive for Indians. We see in Australia, uh, they are also heavily uh, impacted by uh, changes in, in their government migration policies that are going after some of the lower level uh, vocational colleges there that also attract large numbers of Indians for purposes of economic migration, kind of the, what they call the two-step migration, short-term study at a vocational college and then into the workforce. Those colleges are also going to be a real, at real threats, and we've already seen numbers start cratering there in terms of visas approved. So there are opportunities, and that's why you can't ignore India at your own peril. There are so many opportunities uh, that for institutions in the United States to really leverage their position as a destination. And not, again, not just the institutional destination, but the country as a destination. And when you put those two together, you have a winning combination to get in front of the right students and the right parents. So that's all for question two. And let's switch gears to the final topic of the day which relates to a lot of the same issues we're talking about and have been talking about for a number of weeks and months, and that revolves around housing, the housing crisis. And this is, uh, you've, if you've followed the news, if you've subscribed to the newsletter, you certainly have, have seen this. Uh, ISAF Monitor just released a, a new report this past week uh, where they looked at the student housing crunch in, uh, in Europe, in Australia, in Canada. And what they found is the, it hasn't gotten any better uh, in, in, until the numbers start dropping dramatically, and it looks like they're going to in all of those areas. The housing crunch is a real challenge. We had institutions two years ago during the pandemic that were t in the UK that were telling students, if you haven't found housing, even if you've gotten your visa, don't come if you haven't found housing, because there's, if you don't have a place to stay, it's not going to be worth your time coming. That was a, a le th those were messages that were sent out to international students uh, who had been admitted, who might have gotten their visas already. Don't come if you don't have a place to stay because the housing shortage is so bad. Uh, there are places in Canada where the, there, were, there were students that were sitting for a, a 
two-bedroom apartment that's made for maybe four people that had 10 people in it. That's just not a, not a, a healthy living condition that, because there wasn't anything else. And in some of the smaller provinces, uh, uh, less populated provinces, it's even more acute in terms of the housing challenges just because they don't have the housing stock to support the huge numbers that were coming. Cape Breton University is the kind of the, the poster child for that. They're having, they've reduced their enrollments because they don't have the housing. Uh, and those enrollments that they're reducing are almost exclusively going to be international students, which were already about 70% of the population. So we see some real opportunities here uh, in the, for in the United States that don't exist in these other countries because they, and here's, here's the trick, and that when I talk about perspective again, this is the selling point that most people don't understand outside the United States about why the U.S. colleges and universities not only cost so much, but are better environments for students. And most of the rest of the world, when you go to university, it's a place that you physically travel to each day. You're commuting from apartments or buses to get any, somewhere in a bigger city to get to a campus to take your classes. And then you might study for an hour in a library, but you're going home after that. There isn't a campus life culture in most of the rest of the world outside the United States. And part of that reason is housing. In the United States, we don't have largely the housing issues that you have in the rest of the world because we, for our campuses, have that, many that, have, uh, that support international students, have had a philosophy over the years to build on-campus housing. And as a result, there's less of a strain on the local communities to provide the housing stock when you can rely on the campuses to have housing for the students that are coming that need it. And that reduces the impact on the larger community when you have your own facilities on campus. So uh, what we need to do now is really look at that uh, for, uh, for, uh, for international students that are coming to the United States and figure out what makes sense for us uh, in terms of how we position ourselves. We can look at what... Uh, what, inst what we have available, and that's something, uh, particularly if you're at a, um, uh, at a small, uh, small uh, school in a rural or, or suburban community, but you have housing, that's a real selling point. And if you can talk about that as an advantage for your institution, when they're looking at other schools in other countries that are beset with housing problems, if you can use that as leverage to help make your institution much more attractive than you are doing your job. You're, you're looking at the larger picture. And this is, again, another reason why a lot of schools miss an opportunity here when they're recruiting. Talk up your housing. Talk about the, up the community that you have on campus. And talk about what that looks like for your international students. And have them talk about the on-campus experience as a highlight of their time. Because new students, future students, don't know what they don't know. And they don't know, unless they've had family or friends co-study in the United States, they don't know about that campus culture. So really, it's uh, a lot of what we're talking about today is understanding opportunities. Opportunities to promote not only your institution, but your country as a destination for international students. And all of these put together hopefully give you some perspective today on where you can be leveraging your institution for the future and uh, its benefits uh, across the board. So we hope that you enjoyed this session today. I certainly did. There's a lot of great content in here in terms of themes that you can use, take back to your uh, marketing and communications teams, and position your institution better for the next cycle of students coming through. So until next time, we wish you all the best, and we'll chat with you soon. Cheers.